Okay, uh, good afternoon everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for our luncheon. We have a treat for y'all coming right on up. Uh, before, we get on, before we get started, just a couple of brief reminders. 
Um, first, this presentation is being live webcast uh, for the benefit of our um, viewers online. During the question and answer portion, please speak into the microphone so they can hear the brilliant things that you have to say. Um, next week, upstairs on the second floor, Milstein EC, uh, we will have another Tuesday luncheon with um, Dylan Mulvin, of, uh, a postdoctoral researcher at MSR New England, who will be talking about um, embedded problems and, well, excuse me, his talk would be um, embedded dangers, revisiting the Y2K problem and the, the politics of technological repair. So without further ado, I'll let these two gentlemen have at it. Thank you. Hi, I'm Charlie Nesson. I am tremendously pleased to be able to introduce Juan Carlos to Martin to you. My acquaintance with Juan Carlos goes back to a meeting in Torino. How many years ago now? Twelve. Twelve years ago now. When Terry Fisher led a group of us to Torino to do a conference an internet and society conference. And the result of that adventure was not only the bonding of a friendship with Juan Carlos, which has resonated steadily through, but the founding of the Nexa Center for Internet and Society in Torino by Juan Carlos. And a connection between the two of us focused on the future of university. Now we're here today because Juan Carlos has brought that interest to fruition in the form of the publication of this beautiful book in Italian. <laughs> and we look forward to the opportunity from, for hearing from him in the future about the future of university in English. I'm hopeful that many of you brought laptops today. Are there many who have not got any connection to the net? Who has not got net connection? Not too many. All right, great. Well, when Juan Carlos is finished with his presentation to you, I'm looking forward to engaging with you on the net, as well as here face-to-face. -face. So without further ado, may I introduce to you Juan Carlos de Martin, a student, a scholar, a creator of future university. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. It's a pleasure to be back at the uh, Berkman Klein Center at Harvard University. And even though Charlie Nesson already uh, kindly reminded all of us uh, about our connection, let me do a very short preamble to my presentation. The preamble is uh, why I'm, I'm here today talking about the future of university. And uh, the credits uh, mostly go to Charlie Nesson and to the Berkman Klein Center. And let me uh, mention, remind you, the first time where I uh, met an initiative which was explicitly, explicitly focused on the role of university in the Internet age, which is uh, this university that Charlie, I'm sure, remembers very well, and many people in the audience maybe remember as well, which is University Knowledge Beyond Authority in 2007. 
That was maybe the starting point exactly 10 years ago, thinking about the role of university in this age. And then we went on uh, with um, the Berkman Center, organizing a three-day conference in Turin in 2010, again thinking about the role of university in this age. Those two days were truly memorable because we brought together librarians, philosophers, engineers, entrepreneurs, uh, all of them with their specific and uh, singular point of view about the future of university. So it's after this conference organized with the Berkman Center that uh, we, Charlie and I, and maybe other people too after that conference, uh, thought uh, that it would have been a wonderful idea to try to collect these stimuli and try to organize them, give them some order. It was exciting, but there were so many different points of view. It was difficult to come up with an actual plan. And uh, in 2011, together, just me and you, exactly a lunch and talk like this one, we tried this start this trajectory thinking about the role of university. That was the very beginning. Everything was still very fresh. And now after six years, we are here. So let me thank Charlie for setting me on this course. Thank you so much. It was life-changing, and it's not an exaggeration. And let me thank also Urs Gasser that uh, for one year together with other people at the Berkman Center, uh, just let me mention Amar, I saw him, but also many other people. It was a wonderful experience organizing for one year the conference in Torino. It was an amazing experience. So thank you so much to the Berkman Center leading me to this first maybe product, which is this book in Italian, and I will tell you later why it's in Italian. So thank you, Berkman Center. Thank you so much for this experience. Now, the preamble is over, and let's focus on the main question that I wanted to address, uh, which is the role of university in society in the Internet age, which also means in the 21st century, because the 21st century will be many things, is already many things, but one of the things that the 21st century is, is the Internet age. Digital technology born in the 20th century is only becoming pervasive and uh, uh, profoundly influential on our society in the 21st century. Now, rather than addressing this issue theoretically from an abstract point of view, I wanted, maybe because I'm an engineer, I wanted to start from the context. So in which context are we uh, placing our thinking about university? Now, when I, when I mean context, I mean the global context. And uh, a quotation by Garmoin, the French uh, philosopher, uh, reminds us of how ambitious and difficult it is to think about the context. It's very difficult to ask what times do we have in front of us, what are the challenges, what is likely to happen. Nonetheless, we must try, like our ancestors did before us. So it's difficult, it's prone to errors, uh, but yet we have to try, and that's what I try to do. And so the first chapter of the book, and the first part of this presentation, is about trying to identify five global challenges that characterize our times, uh, and most likely the next 10, maybe 20 years. Um, we can discuss, and maybe we'll do it in the question and answer session, why five, why not seven, or three, or 12, why these specific fives, uh, and I'm completely open to the objection that uh, this is arbitrary. Sure, it's my own subjective way of trying to conceptualize the current time. So please accept it as it is. It's my subjective proposal. And I use the word challenges rather than crisis, uh, not because crisis is, would, would be wrong, 
but I, want, I don't want to belong to the apocalyptic literature. I want to make it somewhat less dramatic by calling them challenges, even though they might as well be called crises. So very briefly, because as you can easily understand, each one of these challenges in itself is a potentially huge topic, so you're just going to be extremely fast. For me, the first challenge is a democratic challenge. And uh, by democracy, democracy, people have defined it as a kind of a regime which is always in crisis. But uh, I'm, I think it's fair to say that uh, um, nowadays, uh, in many countries, it's severely under pressure. It's even more in crisis than it, it normally is. And so we have to think carefully about uh, how to make democracy uh, substantial. Actually have a democracy which is not voting every a certain number of years, but something closer to the ideal. Huge topic. We can, if you want, discuss it later, but it's, uh, for me, it's a, it's a major crisis. Second one is the environment. Um, we have been using the planet for now centuries as if it had infinite capacity to accept our, uh, refuse, our garbage and also to, to mine for resources. Of course, that's not the case. We always knew it was not the case. And now we're seeing major development. And let me mention just one, which is global warming. You know everything about that. But global warming, it's interesting in thinking about the role of university because according to several scholars, global warming could lead us to a change in the planet equilibrium, which is hard to grasp and hard to understand. So we will probably need lots of knowledge quickly to understand developments which are not easy to extrapolate from the recent past. Third um, challenge is technology. I'm a computer scientist. Uh, technology has been with humanity from the beginning, but of course in the last couple of hundred years uh, has played a larger role, and in the last few years uh, has played maybe an even larger role with incredible developments in many different kinds of, uh, of disciplines. Uh, that uh, hold promise, and we usually focus on the promise, but they also pose challenges. And uh, these challenges are rarely easy. Intellectually, they are complex, they are difficult. How we can balance the benefits from, with the potential side effects. So uh, you can, again, make uh, your arbitrary subjective list of what are the main technologies. And, uh, you know, I just put up four, like bio biotech, uh, artificial intelligence and robots, so computer science at the frontier, uh, nanotechnologies, neurocognitive, and all of these are moving very fast, much faster than society uh, can handle it, the ordinary citizen or the legal system, so it's moving very fast, uh, typically pushed because uh, uh, they hold the promise of great economic and, and uh, civic benefits, and yet posing enormous questions that, uh, at all levels of society. Fourth challenge is the economy. What do, what do we mean by this? Well, if you, we take a, a broader look, uh, let's say in the last 80 years after the Second World War, uh, we see a phase in the 50s and 60s where we registered, and the data is clear, the fastest and largest growth of uh, economic well-being, both in developed countries and in emerging countries. Then there was a transitional phase in the 70s, and now a second phase started, and we are still living in it, I think. And in the second phase from the 80s to today's, the numbers are pretty clear. Growth has been slower. 
surprisingly, trade has been slower, especially in the last 10 years. And so uh, the question, which is an economic question, but also regards each of us as citizens, is uh, going back to the basic question, how to ensure a decent livelihood to all, how to ensure a decent livelihood without extremes in inequality, etc., etc. So this is it's also an intellectual question because we've seen in economics development in the last, uh, let's say, 30 years, which have reduced the thinking in economics to a very narrow field, and therefore it's also an intellectual endeavor to try to understand how to answer this question. Fifth and last, geopolitics. In geopolitics, I mean that um, uh, I think it's, we have been talking about changes in the world order for at least the last 40 years again. Uh, so the role of the U.S. in the world, uh, what is a new, is a new world, world order emerging or not? Uh, huge questions. Uh, for me, the main point is uh, how to observe and study what's going on. And in order to do everything we can, in order to preserve peace, because history tells us that when world orders readjust, typically at least in the last uh, 200 years uh, and also before, we had war. So can we escape this fate? Can we handle this transition, whatever it is, whichever direction we'll go, uh, preserving peace? Uh, now, if we uh, allow me to uh, draw some observations based on these five challenges is that um, we are most likely going, and maybe already are, in uncharted waters. Uh, there are high risk, so connected to technology, connected to the environment, connected to everything, to democracy. There is the, the risk that we could face um, pretty large dangers. Again, I don't want to sound apocalyptic. I'm not apocalyptic, but we have to assess the risk, and some risk could be large. But what's really puzzling is that um, it could be that some of the things that will happen will be unpredictable in the sense that um, uh, we cannot model it. Uh, it's not a simple, we cannot just simply rely on extrapolation of what happened in the last 10 years or 100 years. It, it, there are signs uh, in several fields where there could be a, could be a discontinuity. It could be an environment. You know, if in, the, in the worst scenarios for global warming, we, scientists simply don't know exactly what will happen to the world system but also in other fields. Uh, now, uh, if we accept this, then um, I think it's fairly uncontroversial to say we will need knowledge. Of course, humanity always needed knowledge, but we will need lots of it, both old and new, more than ever before. It could be we will need somebody in real time trying to make sense of what's going on and find the ways to prevent the worst, to mitigate side effects, to, to capture the best, Second, of course, we will need people capable of interpreting, using, producing such knowledge more than ever before. Um, so educating people with these capabilities. Third, in democracies, humanity will need that the knowledge gets to as many people as possible and that as many people as possible are critical thinkers. Why did I include this third point? Is that, as we all know, there is... Uh, in the US, as in England, as in Italy, in many countries, there is a, a clear rejection of experts and expertise, which as being in universities, we have to be seriously concerned with that. And therefore, we have to address this issue and try to bridge this gap, which is potentially destructive for society. 
So did, what did we, did we do wrong to lose the trust of people? Can we do something to, uh, up, uh, to reduce the gap and to go back to providing maybe new ways knowledge to citizens? So uh, again, it's uh, based on these three observations. Uh, it's clear that the university, at least in principle, will have a very strong role also in the future, maybe even more so than in the past. And these three points are also potentially have implicit a blueprint for the university of the 21st century, as we will see in a second. But before going to the blueprint, let's very briefly assess the current state of university. By university, of course, I don't mean Harvard University. I mean, in a very broad sense, uh, an average of what you, the direction where, uh, of which university uh, walked for the last 40 years. So in which direction university has been going for the last 40 years, very broadly speaking, and on average. Uh, in a nutshell, my, but also there are many, many, many analyses going in the same direction, the society and university has always been extremely sensitive to the pressure of society and to the spirit of the time. So university in these last 40 years has been trying to pursue knowledge as much as possible immediately useful for the economy, broadly speaking. Not that it stopped doing everything else, it just there was a clear preference. If you do that, society, meaning politics, meaning economic power, etc., appreciate, appreciates you. Second, in the field of education, there has been a, um, a strong uh, shift of focus towards training workers, so preparing people for getting a job, which is absolutely fine, it's absolutely understandable, but less attention on the side of the education of human beings and citizens, uh, which has been, is traditionally in the roots of university, but has received less attention. Again, think broadly, on in, not only in this specific place where I speak. Third, and uh, is that university, um, and uh, if you look at the sociology of organizations, is wide, has always been widely recognized as a normative organization. Normative is an organization based on values and symbols, where power is exercised through values and symbols, uh, rather than a utilitarian organization. Uh, and the most important one are companies. Okay? Now, if we look at overall the, the policy around universities in many countries, it look like we could conceptualize as uh, a push trying to change the nature of university from normative, like churches, not-for-profits, etc., to something more close to a utilitarian organization. Of course, the pure models never exist in nature. Uh, even, uh, even churches or non-for-profits non might have some parts of utilitarian organizations, but uh, universities were pretty clearly normative and has become, over time, more utilitarian because of pressure from the outside world. And just a few examples, the uh, intense use of metrics in evaluating researchers and getting tenure and promotion, uh, which reaches absurd levels in my own country. Uh, insane emphasis on in publishing for publishing's sake. So it doesn't really matter what you publish. You just have to be productive, which means produce a lot of publications. And uh, connected to the second point, the third point is that dis disciplines have become more and more narrow you want, because it's easier to publish if you are in the center of your discipline, if you don't, uh, if you're not wandering around the boundaries of your discipline. In other words, uh, we could summarize, and there is a, a huge literature on this, 
the historically multidimensional mission of university has been flattened, looking at the more useful economic uh, uh, products, and the spirit of the institution altered from normative to utilitarian. Um, however, I come from Italy, and uh, the book is in Italian, and uh, it's in it Italian because when I, we were working and thinking and discussing with Professor Nesson, um, my country was, um, was entering the huge crisis uh, after 2008, and um, uh, the fate of my country is pretty similar to the rest of Southern Europe, so Portugal, Spain, uh, and Greece, being Greece the worst case, of course. And in the case of Italy, in the last seven years, university, which is already one of the smallest universities in OECD countries, we have the lowest level of graduates, even among young people of OECD countries. Rather than doing something to overcome this uh, historical gap, uh, university in Italy was contracted by 20%. So the funding, the number of professors, and the number of students was reduced by 20% in the last seven years. Okay? Uh, so that's why I say, first of all, I need to write it into Italian and try to do something about that. Um, all this represents a problem if we want universities to help societies to face the challenges that we described before. If you have a too, such a strict focus on the short-term benefits, if you have a, such a focus on preparing workers, actually that's not what you should be doing if you want to help society facing these huge problems that I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, we need, in fact, a university free to focus on problems affecting society, not those immediately relevant to the market. Okay. Uh, we need all kinds of knowledge, not, what the, not only the knowledge that uh, um, looks useful right now. And we need it. We, we can also take the, I can accept the utilitarian approach. Okay? Let's accept it. Even from a utilitarian point of view, knowledge that now looks not useful could be useful in three years, in five years, in ten years. And actually there are plenty of examples of knowledge that was deemed unuseful and turned out to be extremely useful just a little down the road. So we need to keep diversity. And we, you can argue it from different point of view, but we can also argue it from a utilitarian point of view. We need a sort of ecological diversity of knowledge. Uh, we need interdisciplinarity because many challenges of society are intrinsically interdisciplinary. Okay? All the challenges that I mentioned are interdisciplinary. And, um, but with the current focus on disciplinarity, this is difficult to do. The incentives for researchers, and I'm sure many people will resonate, the incentives are not in that direction. And we need effective interaction, not just communication, with the general public. Okay? I want to underline, it's not a matter of better communicating. Okay? Let's communicate as effectively as possible, but it's not a matter just of giving them our truth. It's also a matter of interacting with them. And that's another story. So, and we need a university who speaks truth, meaning university who speaks what thinks it's true, even if it's inconvenient. So how do we get this? Uh, my proposal, which I articulate in the book, uh, is also in this talk, is by rediscovering the roots of university, because in the roots of university, so in the way university was conceived by our grandfathers and going down to at least the beginning of the 19th century, there is a, a solution we, for these kind of problems. Okay? But it's not a mere reinstatement of 
the good old times. It's not simply let's take the university as it was in the 30s or in Berlin at Humboldt's time. No, uh, we have to also update these roots. We also have to deal with specific problems. So the roots, belong. what belongs to the roots of university? Definitely the fact that education is a relationship among human beings. So if we lose this at all levels of education, um, then we are losing something extremely important about education. Education is not mere information transfer. And so in the education side, we have to preserve it. Innovating, experimenting, like we always did, because if you look at the history of education, there have been proposals of innovating this personal relationship in many different ways, but we have to keep the personal relationship. And also education of human beings and citizens, not just workers. This is in the roots of university. Look back back to the 18th century. It's already there. So nothing new here. We have to just rediscover it. Critical thinkers, everybody is in favor of critical thinking. Everybody talks about critical thinking. Uh, but it's another matter to actually, it's an open question, it's also a, an open research question, how to, how to actually improve critical thinking in people, in students. Uh, so even though everybody talks about it, even, it's still an open problem act, to actually um, uh, realize it. And it's in the roots of university. The, the head well done, as Montaigne used to say. Um, and we want critical thinkers because I'm afraid that we will deal, my generation and, and the millennials, uh, unexpected situations in different fields. And we need somebody who will be able to, to think on their feet, use critical tools, uh, use knowledge, produce knowledge, and deal with the unexpected. And as an institution, and we are still part of the roots of the university, taking the long view, thinking, okay, let's think about the next generation. Let's think about the next 20 years, capable of slowness in a, in a world which is extremely fast, but it's very myopic, being able to go slow, of silence, of concentration. This is all part of the description of university for maybe a thousand years. However, with respect to the past university, I want and I propose and I envision a university much more capable of the several things. Keeping the limits of disciplinarity under control to be able to address relevant problems. There is an important problem which doesn't fit in a certain discipline. Therefore, nobody is actually hand studying it. We have to overcome that. And we do that not by abolishing disciplines. I'm not an abolitionist. Disciplines play an important role in, in society, in the scientific society. But if left loose, or even if, if given incentives to become even more disciplinary, they create walls. We don't want walls between disciplines. Maybe a little short fence, um, and we need people being able to cross the fence to establish uh, bridges. Uh, so discipline's fine, but kept under control. And it's not really happening as, as, apart from certain specific places. Strongly encourage heterodox thinking. Now, in principle, everybody is invited to think outside the box and to be innovative, but actually it's pretty clear that at least in certain dis disciplines and economics, I think is a very strong case in point, uh, universities become a conformist. So there is one mainstream accepted way of looking at problems and everything else is, is to be ostracized. And this is bad. It's bad intellectually, it's, ba it's bad also 
again, from a utilitarian point of view, we need real new heterodox thinking, exactly like it always happened. University has produced lots and lots of heterodox thinking that eventually changed society. Now, more theoretically, but still very important, university conceiving itself as being a trustee for the unborn, for the generation to come. Now, this has been typically, at least in Europe, maybe the US is different, but in Europe, this has been um, uh, a role of the state to take care of future generations. Now, the states, uh, certainly in Southern Europe, but maybe more generally in Europe, do this less and less. They become short-termist, uh, the states as well. Uh, but the university has always had uh, the role of bridging the dead with the unborn, and therefore should co conceive itself more clearly as trustee of the unborn. And then we can discuss how, but still, this concept for me, I think it's important. Con and the side effect of this is conscience and critical society, not for criticism per se, but uh, university that says what it thinks it should be said, also thinking of future degenerations. What about them? Okay. Let me mention uh, President Faust. At this moment in our history, university might, uh, might well ask if they have, in fact, done enough to raise the deep and unsettling questions necessary to any society. She wrote this in the New York Times in 2009, right after the financial crisis, and is still relevant today. Fourth, engaging with the public, and as I mentioned before, engaging with the public means not only communicating to them, which often becomes preaching to them, but listening to them, okay, listening to their concerns, uh, which well, doesn't mean pandering to them, but it means listening to their priorities, to their concerns, uh, and have a dialogue, which also the researchers in science communication says is the only thing that possibly works. Simply saying, no, you're wrong, this is what science says, if you don't believe it, you're a moron, uh, that doesn't work. The only thing that possibly works is actually a dialogue even though it's, it's difficult and time-consuming. And fifth and lastly, active employing the internet to achieve these general objectives. Now, that's where we started, also with Charlie Nesson, thinking about the internet and then the university. And over the course of these years, I kind of reversed my perspective, saying, okay, let's think about society, the broader context, and then technology becomes an instrument to reach the objectives. And, and I'm sure all of you understand or at least can envision how to use the internet for all the previous points, interacting with the public, uh, preserving knowledge for the future generation, etc., etc. So the internet as a means to an end. So let me conclude so that we have enough time for the conversation. The global context is, to put it mildly, in flux. And more than in the recent past, we will need new ideas, critical thinking, and character. By character, I mean the moral quality of individuals, because in trying times, uh, not only knowledge, not only rationality will be important, but also the character of individuals. Uh, so these are clear responsibilities for university. And uh, the university, and that's my proposal, uh, can move in this direction, in the direction demanded by the 21st century, by rediscovering its roots, because in the roots, so uh, it's not a total reinvention. No, no, we can rediscover the roots because we already find there in the, our history, in our roots, uh, many things that are useful, 
looking forward, but also with some critical ad adaptation to the present time. So not merely a reinstatement of what was in the past. And again, let me uh, finish with a, with a quotation. Higher learning can offer individuals and societies a depth and breadth of vision absent from the inevitably myopic present. Human beings need meaning, understanding, and perspective, perspective as well as jobs. The question should not be whether we can afford to believe in such purposes in these times, but whether we can, can afford not to. Again, President Faust. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Now, if you would, I'd like you to open your laptops. I'd like you to go to cyber.harvard.edu slash questions slash futurau. You will arrive at something called the live question tool. I want you to do nothing else for the moment. Just get there. What I'd like you to do now is to give thought to the one question that you would like to see answered by Juan Carlos and enter it in the box there. Don't hit the send button yet. Just enter it in the box. Are we having connection questions? Sorry? Here. Cyber, C-Y-B-E-R. Yes, please. Cyber dot harvard dot edu slash questions slash futura u I just put it up sometimes it's slow actually listing in this list so if you just go up to the URL Yes, you did. Can you get there? If you can get there, I hope you can get there. If you can't, we'll figure out another way around. I want you to formulate your question in the box that's provided where it says, post a question, click post a question, it will open a post a question box. And it will give you something like a Twitter-length opportunity, a little bit longer, to state a question. Please all do. And within uh, a minute, I will ask you to hit the button. But don't hit it until I tell you. Don't hit submit. And please maintain it anonymous.
Okay, hit the button. And once you've hit it, close your laptops. Make sure it goes through. Don't close before you... Just hang on until... Some, this, is, this, is, this is homegrown software, you understand, written by Jonathan Zittrain many years ago. When we started the Berkman Center, our thought was exactly the idea of bringing together the diversity of a classroom and the idea of using the digital environment that we were exploring as a way of actually enhancing the engagement within a classroom seemed like a logical strategy. And I'm actually curious to open up with that as a question to you, Juan Carlos. Do you see, when you speak about the strategies for university, they're grand, and are, are we able to, to do them ourselves, or are we just able to opinionate about them? But when it comes down to, can we manage our classroom in a way that makes university come alive, in a way that might take advantage of the incredible diversity that we're now able to assemble and somehow move past the solidified forms of university knowledge transfer, even the ideal of knowledge transfer. It seems like the place for growth of university is right here, right here. Um, actually, when uh, and I'm looking also the first question about uh, which already changed, but about um, how to um, uh, facilitate change. Uh, when I wrote this book, uh, I was not thinking very much about um, administrators, at least not the Italian ones. And I was not thinking of politicians, at least not the Italian ones. And uh, I was thinking of students, students, their families ordinary citizens, because I do believe that, uh, even though it might take a long time, only uh, talking about these issues with the students uh, and their families uh, and their friends, uh, uh, we can achieve change. So I don't believe much uh, a sort of a top-down, even if it happens, it's welcome, but uh, I don't really trust that, uh, that it would easily happen top-down. So let me just follow it along, if I may. If change is going to come, and we need all this knowledge in order to be the masters of this new space, the idea of it coming from students sounds a little crazy. That's the students don't have the knowledge. They come to university to get knowledge. But, but you know, they should know what is a student. And actually, that's an interesting point. What is a student? What is a student? <laughs> well... They, well, um, maybe that's exactly where we should start with students, trying to explore with them what is a student. What is the student What's the difference between a student and a learner, for instance? Who is the university student? I, you find uh, building blocks for your answer looking at history, but even just looking at the present time. You know, the university student is just is, is a specific kind of learner. There is a specificity. May I cold call David Weinberger? <laughs> oh, 
I think everybody's going to have. It's a wonderful question and a question to the question, and I think the <laughs> answer is too obvious to require a cold call. <laughs> but um, it would seem that a student, a learner, is anybody who wants to engage and mm -hmm. learn, if I may. And a student seems to need to be in a more structured environment, um, maybe but getting learn credit about or what, David. And, Everything, anything. Anything, sure. Doesn't make any difference. Yeah, I don't think it's... And, yeah. and there's so much out there to learn. And now know. that we've got our little digital thing, we have it all right there. And so we don't need all of that. Oh, I wouldn't go that far. Um, but we, I was with you 100% until you got to, yeah. we don't need all the rest. Because yeah. <laughs> most people in this room have benefited uh -huh. from, exactly from all that rest and uh -huh. varying degrees of uh, commitment to it. Um, so I think the question is... Assume that everybody has one of these, which, you know, is not a true assumption, but within large swaths of the world it is. Um, what is it that the university can bring to them that they don't get um, on their own? Or what is it that a student, being a student, would bring to them that being a learner wouldn't? Mm -hmm. Yes? Please. Hi, my name is Navroop, um, and I graduated from University of Turin, and we had these discussions okay. there. Um, so there's a tacit component to knowledge, uh, and that is what differentiates a student who is physically here versus somebody who's taking MOOCs, for example. I think the answer is embedded in the very definition of knowledge compared to information. Knowledge of what? Um, Knowledge of anything, but there's a critical human component to it compared to information which can be structured and can be transmitted without loss compared to knowledge where you need to be physically here, me talking and, you know, uh, you guys talking about something and the, uh, the learning is different. That's what I feel about it. That's what I learned. <laughs> Thank you. Hmm. Oh, yes, you can. Um, but, you know, maybe to be cynical for a moment, I mean, mm -hmm. ideals aside, students are also students as opposed to learners because they're postulants to systems that grant access to power and authority in different kinds of ways, mm -hmm. that grant professional privileges or uh, knowledge that's instrumental in different kinds of ways. And uh, indeed, these institutions, in part animated by the ideals that you've enumerated really richly, um, are also implicated in those systems mm -hmm. of power. Um, and so I think that's a dimension of the university's role in society that we need to pay attention to as well. Absolutely, I agree. Well, I'd press my question, knowledge of what? I, I've been very impressed with um, the, uh, the position I have heard articulated by Peter Gallison, History of Science, uh, articulating the idea that the opposition that we should be concerned with is the opposition between the internet expansiveness on the one hand and the diminution of self on the other. That is, the idea that we are finding ourselves diluted as we more and more live through the screen and we are finding ourselves more questioning the edifice of knowledge that's been built through the centuries by universities now crumbling into its problematic hearsay quality with fake news and lack of border. And so ultimately the question of knowledge of what 
would seem to turn to knowledge of ourselves and questions of who and what we can trust and how we can use our engagement with each other in university to resist the dilution that the openness of the net presents to the problem of self. Just a thought. Now, am I right that we end at 1 o'clock? Is that right, Dan? It's a 1.15. Oh, one fifteen. Excellent, excellent. Oh, excellent, then. <laughs> so, floor is open. Should we open our laptops again and vote up the questions and see what comes up to the top? Can we take a few minutes and see how we... Which, which, which questions? Sure. Yeah? Question right here. That's fine. There you go. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, <clears throat> so in terms of the knowledge being produced, now that there are lots of young researchers in the systems, lots of PhDs being produced and not enough jobs for them, uh, there's that pressure to publish a lot of papers. Um, and Peter Higgs, a physicist who got the Nobel Prize, he's now about 87 years old, he says that when he was, in today's academic, if, if the academic environment were, had been the way it is today, he wouldn't have gotten a job. Right. And there's no room to do thoughtful research when you have so much pressure to produce numbers. And it's also very tough on young researchers in terms of like many people who are very smart, hardworking, but there aren't enough. So what's your thought on how to incentivize good research in a way that doesn't just produce numbers when mm -hmm. there's a disproportionate number of PhDs being produced compared to the jobs? Is there a broader solution? Right. Um, to a large extent, is uh, the academic community itself uh, which has accepted this, this focus on publishing a lot. So it's been only partly pushed from the outside. It's mostly us that uh, uh, in the last 40 years thought it would be a good strategic move to send a message to the outside world that we are, quote, unquote, productive. And therefore, it's to a large extent self-inflicted. Now, how do you stop that? Well, in, I believe in, in trying to, to bring up to provoke a debate and to question that. And I'm far from being alone in the sense that now there are dozens and dozens of papers published in Nature, in Science, and The Economist, precisely denouncing the negative side effects of this extreme focus on publishing. So um, it's becoming totally mainstream. And uh, I'm afraid it will take uh, time in order to dis for this criticism to actually change practices. Because in the meantime, the whole academic infrastructure has adjusted to this change and so has adjusted to this requirement of publishing a lot. So it'll, uh, I don't have, don't have any clear and fast solutions rather than keep discussing and keep saying it, uh, hoping that at some point it will become widespread. Would you like to use this question tool now that we've come up with some very good sure. ones here? I think you may have just addressed the first one. I'll take a look at it and see if you think you have. And if not, move on to the second. Are you a Juventus fan? <laughs> I don't care much about soccer, sorry. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> 
What are some specific ways you think we can make these changes happen? But, but let me go back to the, the first question. I mean, utilitarian job conscious time, what arguments might resonate with a skeptical public? Um, well, let's go back to the question of who's a, a student. Now, a student is somebody who is, uh, in principle, voluntarily seeking an experience of a few years of, of his or her time because it's passionate about knowledge. This, in principle, the root of the words studere in Latin, from which student comes, means passion. Okay, So that's the, the principle. And uh, so I invite students in my book, but more generally saying, you're investing something valuable, a few years of your life. In the US, also a huge financial commitment. And uh, extract the best out of that, because those, time, those years will not come back. And you have an extraordinary opportunity to deal with different kinds of knowledge and fields of knowledge and uh, exploit it as much as possible. Because when afterwards, it will be difficult for you to do the same. So uh, try to do that as much as possible because it's a unique opportunity. And this is in the, in the mind of people. It's not only nobody's forcing us to be job conscious and utilitarian. It's also in the mind of people. So that's why I was asking who's a student, trying to remind students what they are ideally, in principle, supposed to be. I know I sound very normative and idealistic, I know. There's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> well, I mean, the underlying worry is that this is all very wonderful, but we live in a practical world mm -hmm. that's driving universities more and more to follow the dollar. And do we have anything? What, 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 have, we got, what have we got to play with? What are our chips in the game? We're getting hurt. Yes, universities have, um, are very precarious, uh, are very extremely sensitive to um, the external world. Incidentally, that's why we always keep about talking about academic freedom. We talk so much about academic freedom exactly because we are so weak, broadly speaking. Again, I'm not talking specifically about Harvard. Um, but in the, so that, that's, uh, we are very, we are very uh, sensitive to the outside world. Yet... Everybody recognizes that uh, universities has, has a, have a certain degree of autonomy. Without autonomy, you don't have universities. They become something else. So what I'm suggesting is that let's uh, explore. In different countries, you will do different things. Explore the degree of autonomy you have. And I suspect that you have more autonomy and more leeway to, to do things that I advocate more than we think, more than we, the administrators think. Somehow we are uh, too shy and too constrained. We are self-constrained. So you could frame it, as I do often in the book, as also in this talk, saying uh, we, don't, you don't, we don't want to, to talk about high principle. Okay, let's be utilitarian. And actually you can, in several cases, prove that what I advocate is more useful. Maybe not next month, but in a little longer time. So that's, for instance, something that a position you could take is also a position on a Nobel Prize in economics like Phelps, who explicitly says it's good for the economy to educate in a liberal sense uh, uh, citizens and workers. So I think there is a space to, to exploit our autonomy to go somewhat more in this direction. 
It is not a, a huge breathing space because we are constrained by the outside world, but we could do more. What do you see as the difference with American universities? Well, I mean, in the U.S., the cost of education uh, is something that distorts all, all thinking. I mean, the, the cost of education, which in Europe, in many countries, is zero. Uh, and in some countries, uh, let's forget about the U.K., which is already questionably part of Europe. But uh, in other countries, uh, it's zero. Like in Germany, it's essentially zero. In many countries, it's zero. So when instead, like in the U.S., you have to make such a huge investment and take loans and debts, then the thinking about university changes radically. Because if you're in investing so much money, it's almost impossible not to think of university as an investment. And then if it's an investment, then I become a customer. But if I'm a customer, then a university is a service provider, etc., etc. There are several things that happen in Cascade when there is so much money involved. I think that's for me, is the main difference. So you see a radical and, and difference. Let, let me say this, Charlie. When I came through, the, through customs on Friday, and um, the young agent at the customs uh, said, where are you coming here? I'm talking about a book, a book about the university. What kind of university? What do, you, what do you say in the book? Do you talk about student loans? That's what he asked me. That's a huge problem. You should talk about that. <laughs> well, yes, I think you should. <laughs> in I mean, the American version of the book with you. But, but if that's the fundamental difference between American universities and Italian universities... No, it's not the only one. It's not the only one. Of course, it's not the only one. And actually, people reading my book in Italy are clearly seeing that I'm, what I'm proposing for Italian university is to move in certain fields towards the American model. And the American model, it's interesting. The, if you look, uh, trace the history of liberal arts education, it's interesting because it starts in Italy at the end of the 14th century and the 15th century. There is a sort of educational revolution happening in Italy at the time. And then uh, it essentially stops with the counter-reformation and moves back to northern, moves to northern Europe. And through northern Europe goes up to the Scottish universities of the Enlightenment, which have a fundamental role in influencing the development of universities in the US. And so the liberal arts education uh, born in Italy ends up being represented and championed mostly by the US, but the roots, the original roots are Italian. And so I'm advocating to Italy saying, let's rediscover our own roots and let's uh, adopt uh, the model that uh, you see at least, at least for certain areas of education in the US. Do you see Italian universities as in worse shape than American universities or vice versa? Oh, it, it's uh, almost impossible to make a comparison in the sense that in Italy we have an actual system of 66 universities funded by the state. So it's very top-down, governed by a ministry. And uh, in the U.S. you have an entirely different, it's not even a system. You have uh, 4,400 different kinds of higher education institutions, uh, in extremely heterogeneous. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's really impossible to make a comparison. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have dominated the questions. <laughs> May I please invite others to contribute? Perhaps so. Thank you. Uh, you, you just mentioned that even from your Taiwan perspective, maybe the learning about scope of knowledge may be useful 
maybe not in one year, but in five years or ten years in the future. But I think, uh, as to at least uh, according to my observation, maybe your your workshop return is not very extreme. The more extreme one is that the only the all the actually the majority purpose of some students who go to university find job after graduation immediately. So even if I have seen the possibility that what I'm learning may be useful in five, next five years, but it, if it cannot help me find a job, then I have no, no opportunity to use this kind of skills without a job. So under this pressure, and the, the students, maybe even if the professors have noticed that we should not focus too much on employment or something like that and to learn more about the broader liberty and art. Maybe students will think, oh, that's not useful for my job seeking. I don't want this. I want to learn such so-called hard skills, something like that, mm -hmm. and how to address these issues. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the point is that what is useful? There are in cases where the answer is obvious. Okay, you learn to program a computer. Fine, that's a very clear skill, and it's going to be useful in many lines of work. But there are other, um, other topics uh, which is not clear at all what, what does it mean to be useful, okay? And, uh, and therefore, students, uh, which of course are influenced by the time in which they live, they are maybe too fast in thinking, okay, this is not going to be useful because there is not a clear connection with a potential job. Uh, because you actually don't know what kind of job you will be doing in 5, 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, there is even companies, very often they say, we don't, we don't want to really prescribe something because our field, our market is changing so rapidly that we want somebody actually in the US, that's pretty clear also in the business literature, we want somebody flexible, we want somebody with the cap capability of learning new things, and if you put together, actually, the World Economic Forum, the future of jobs, if you look at the 10 main skills required by employers, prospective employers, they're very rarely specific skills like learning to program a computer. They're very much more softer skills, like being flexible, being adaptable, being able to interact with people, being able to learn new things. And therefore, again, let's go back to the utilitarian point of view. Um, uh, I think that maybe learning something of ancient literature of, of, a, of a dead language maybe is not directly relevant right away for a job, but it could be useful to create a person flexible and productive, okay? So it's a matter of, um, of being a little more open-minded in thinking about what is useful. Hi. Um, so I hear about, and, and you yourself said um, that you recognize some idealism in your in your proposal. And I think that, I actually think that if you are going to be idealistic, um, why do you put so much hope in the university instead of actually individuals, individuals who will mm -hmm. get, as technology becomes more available, mm -hmm. the access to information that they need? Mm -hmm. And then forums are just going to be, I mean, I believe that universities, um, and I, I think you addressed the point of the diminishing self, actually people have found 
forums that they couldn't find, uh, find because it's, it's hard to like identify people's interests. Mm -hmm. um, they have found them through the internet. There have forums mm -hmm. that like about pe very specific things that attract very uh, specific interest, um, and people find those ways. So if you mm -hmm. were really idealistic, you would believe that people who have the mm -hmm. interest to learn will find that information, mm -hmm. and then universities will become really, really, I mean, I, I believe the only need for, for a forum of like discussion would be like, would also be replaced by, by the internet. I mean, mm -hmm. as I am sitting down here, I believe that, and I hope that my kids don't have to, to, um, pay $80,000 a year for, um, being sitting in a classroom, but that sometimes, um, they don't find it, uh, of things they don't find interest when interesting when they can just mm -hmm. go in the internet and mm -hmm. and find that information. Okay, um, institutions are important, and um, since I belong to this institution, I uh, I spent a few some time some years thinking about my institution. Institutions have a long uh, inertia. Uh, well, the a university has been the longest uh, living institution because now it's almost 1,000 years. And uh, so it's, it's a, as a presence in society, as a role in society. And I think it's, in, it's important to think uh, uh, how to maximize the positive role of this institution. And which is not saying that what you described is not important. Sure, mm, let's have individuals get together, use the internet and focus on whatever they think is important. Uh, so it's not mutually exclusive. And uh, I, the, having an institution um, which uh, has the uh, persistent power of being here also in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years, and having a community of people inside, uh, the professors and the researchers, uh, who in principle have uh, the time to think about problems and produce new knowledge and propose solutions, it's in, I think it's invaluable. Uh, because uh, if we leave it only to the individuals uh, in, uh, let's say, ordinary life, uh, what we've seen um, in also in the, in the movements of the last several years is that uh, uh, you don't have uh, persistence, the power of persistency. You are active for some time, you devote your interest, your energies for a certain objective, and then you move on because you need a job or because uh, you have a family, etc. So the power that of institutions is that uh, uh, they, are, they are there they will stay. And this provides uh, uh, something that the single individual cannot provide. Yes? Hi, my name is Ansha Amin. I'm a research fellow with the Berkman Klein Center. I guess I have a, a, a practical question as well. I'm, I'm wondering if there are, you know, I'm thinking about the Berkman Klein Center, for instance. I'm uh, a research fellow, but I'm not a traditional academic. I'm not mm -hmm. a professor. I'm not getting a PhD. But I have a con contribution to make, I, I hope, to the center. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm thinking about continuing education programs, mm -hmm. uh, remote learning programs. What do you think about how we can rethink some of the structures and institutions of universities around this question around engaging the public? Mm -hmm. um, and how do we rethink publics um, and rethink who can participate in the university? What do you think of the current models here, and are there other models that you can think about that, that we, universities might want to consider moving forward? Well, the, what I try to envision in, in this book is a, a university that has an academic community in the narrow sense, so the students, the professors, the staff, etc., but also is more aware 
of a um, academic community, a wider academic community. And this wider academic community, you can see it also as a, almost as a concentric circles, where you can have the people come into a meeting like this, because it's public, they could come to the meeting. They can, uh, it's easier in, the, in Italy, we can use the library. You can actually, the classes are public in Italy, so anybody can enter a class and, and listen, even a whole course. It's completely public. And therefore, I invite universities to conceptualize this extended academic community more clearly and to engage them more explicitly. And of course, the internet is a great way of doing that. Uh, the very fact that this talk is being webcast is an example uh, of reaching to a wider academic community. Can I use Mike runner around or privilege to ask a question? <laughs> um, <clears throat> So I'm looking at the question tool, and there are two questions that are like, getting a lot of engagement. The first one that says, what is the role of university with respect to society's most marginalized and underrepresented people? How can this community meaningfully engage marginalized populations? And also, how do we get gender and racial equality in the senior ranks of universities? Mm -hmm. um, do you mind touching on that topic, please? Sure. Um, let's start with the, with the first one. How? Well, it's, um, you can do several things uh, to, um, uh, regarding the most marginalized and underrepresented people. Um, again, the, the American system where you have a, a selection of students, so there is a, uh, you create the class in selective universities, is different from the case in, uh, in many universities in, in, uh, in Europe where essentially you take all the students. So in that case, there is not a filter of any sort. Uh, anybody who has the willingness uh, and the practical possibility of going to university actually can, at least in principle. So again, the two systems are different in this regard. And also, therefore, the actions are different. Uh, what I can say that maybe are in common is that uh, uh, the internet, uh, without idealizing the internet, but again, is a tool that potentially could be helpful in reaching to most marginalized population and, uh, and uh, people. Um, but it, it, it's a very partial answer because it really depends on the context. One thing is Harvard, one thing is public university, one thing is uh, in, uh, in Italy. And the second question was, sorry? Um, or gender in 